Hi there, welcome to the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Griffith, and I am so excited to have you here. On this podcast, we talk about all forms of neurodivergence, from ADHD to learning disorders to giftedness to autism and more. If any of that sounds familiar, welcome to Neurodivergent Magic. Hi, Dr. Kimberly. How are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I guess I didn't ask. Is it okay that I call you Dr. Kimberly? Dr. That is Douglas? Fine. That okay. is fine. Yeah, Dr. Kimberly's fine. <laughs> okay. Hi. I am so, so honored to have you on the podcast today. Um, why don't you tell people where they can follow you and a little bit about what you do? Okay. So what I'll do is I will give you two of my social accounts. Those, those are the easiest places to find me. So I'm on TikTok quite a bit and it's at Dr. Kimberly Douglas, all one word, Douglas has two S's on it. And also on LinkedIn, that's why I really wanna have conversations with people and it's Kimberly Douglas, two S's, PhD there. And um, yeah, so I'm on Facebook and some other platforms, but I'm really on, mostly on TikTok more so than any other place. Did you ask me something else though? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little bit about you and what you do. Okay. All right. So I am a coach consultant to neurodivergent entrepreneurs. I am also a writer, which I think we'll talk mostly about today. And um, what I've decided to do is focus my writing on my in my TikTok account and my uh, support for neurodivergent entrepreneurs to focus that in LinkedIn. And the work that I do with entrepreneurs has to do, I, I go back to basics. We start with values, vision, mission, and peel things apart. And one of the most important things I do with neurodivergent entrepreneurs is talk about the meaning of neurodivergence in their business and the role of neurodivergence in their business. And it's important to me that people start in what I call a neutral position. And here's what I mean. So people talk about neurodivergence um, or just specific neurodivergencies like autism, ADHD, learning disabilities as their superpower. And so either we talk about it as a superpower or we talk about the powerlessness we feel as neurodivergence with myself being neurodivergent. But we don't talk about the everyday power that we need in between. And so what I encourage people to do is start in a neutral place and move away from things like, oh, I have too many ideas. I have too much of this or not enough of this or not enough. The starting place is, this is how I function. This is what I have. This is what I do. This is how I do it. Because when you start in a place of, I have too many of this and not enough of that, it really doesn't give you anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. It doesn't provide you anything meaningful to change in a way that gets you the outcomes you want. And so if you start in a neutral position, and many of us, our experiences have been such that we couldn't start in neutral positions because either our parents or our school or people at church told us that we were inherently flawed for one reason or another. And that makes it really difficult to imagine that you should start in a neutral position or that a neutral position is even possible. We spend a lot of time critiquing ourselves and making sure we do that before other people do it. And so in working with neurodivergent entrepreneurs, that is an important piece of what I do, which is center the neurodivergence 
and not as this wonderful, fabulous, I'm smarter than everybody else, but this is how I function. This is what it means in my life, but this is what I want it to mean. This is how I want it to function. And that actually gives us somewhere to go. But beyond that, so I help with the administrative parts. I came from academia. I was an associate dean and a tenured faculty member. So I've got the administrative skills. I help people with that, as well as systems development. And one of my responsibilities as the associate dean was to develop an admission system. And I worked on a big uh, data infrastructure project. So I'm a systems person as well. So uh, I tried to get away from this label of coach, but I don't think that I can because there is some coaching involved, especially when we talk about the role of neurodivergence. But I also am a consultant because I say, go here, do this, set it up this way, set it. Because a lot of neurodivergent people that I work with don't necessarily need a coach for systems and things like that, because we can go out and learn whatever it is we need to learn. But my clients do need support in reframing how they look at themselves. Mm -hmm. So coaching is helpful in that regard. But another piece of it is the consulting. Um, but to make sure I answer your question completely, the other thing is I'm a writer, digital content creator, and I am working on my second book about decolonizing neurodivergence. And I think that's that's where we're going to take the conversation today. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was hoping to talk about. And all of everything that you were just talking about is fascinating. So we just, we had to pick one thing to focus on. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's focus on decolonizing neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we even start this conversation? So everything, especially in America, but everything everywhere is touched by white supremacy. Like I think that's just how it is. Um, how has white supremacy affected neurodivergency specifically? Like, I know that's a really big question, um, but yeah. like, what are some specific examples you've seen and how is it, you know, negatively affecting people? So it's a big question, but it's a question worth addressing because white supremacy is a core feature of this game that we're in. It, it, is, it is not a glitch. No, it is a feature no. of the game. It is a logic of the game. It is a logic of the software that we are using. And it is, when I think about colonization, the way that colonization has been, what I would call successful in this country is through white supremacist culture. It is the bedrock of colonization. And the reason why I labeled my first book of on decolonizing neurodivergence, the reason why I labeled it as such, is because colonization is about extracting resources. And sometimes that resource is a plant, sometimes the resource is water, but sometimes the resource is the human body, the human mind. And the thing with colonization is that it has no regard for the state that it leaves that plant in or that body of water in or that human being in. And my closure slid over. Thus climate change and issues with the ozone because resource extraction is done with little to no regard from 
uh, about the source from which we are extracting. And so decolon or colonization follows applying the logic of white supremacy to it has ensured that it can shift and shape and rebrand in a way that makes it really difficult to get yourself out of this logic. And so some of the cultures of white supremacy include urgency, perfection, one right answer, progress is always more, quantity over quality, paternalism, um, worship of the written word, what else? There, there are others, they'll come to me in just a moment. But those values, those cultural values show up. So now when we think about neurodivergency, the reason why we have to decolonize it, um, so there's no clinical term called neurodivergence. There are neurodivergencies such as ADHD and autism and learning disabilities that are diagnosable. But under this umbrella of neurodivergence, you have all of these different um, these different neurodivergencies. Now, each one of those has a medical description or criteria for diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But my basic premise is this. As much as these neurodivergencies are rooted in, that have medical descriptions, medical terminology, they are also social constructs. Mm -hmm. And the older you get, the more neurodivergent the world makes you. So here's what I mean. It's not that you actually become more neurodivergent, but what that means is you fit less and less into the systems that are provided in society. And so your neurodivergence is butting up against those systems more and more and more. And that friction becomes uh, even hotter or uh, chafes you more. The older you get, the more you try to live an autonomous life, it becomes more and more difficult. So let me give you an example. When you are in daycare and when you are in pre-K, you're supposed to sit crisscross applesauce. You're supposed to be able to walk down the hall in a line. You're supposed to be in a room, a small room with 10 kids because they're trying to cram as many people in as possible. And the problems start there. With you, for example, me saying as a, a very sensitive person that there are too many people in here. It's, and of course, at three or four, you don't have the words to say I'm overwhelmed or I'm wrongly stimulated in this situation or why is my teacher wearing perfume, it's driving me nuts. And mm -hmm. so it looks like you're not being social, you're not being this, you're not being that because you're not just going along with things. And it gets harder and harder to do that the older you get. And we do, you know, what is called masking in the autism world. And Sometimes we think we're masking really well, but we're not fooling anybody but ourselves. But you yeah. redon these masks to try and it's a survival mode. And so the world, because of the structures that it has put in place, the systems that it's put in place, is making our neurodivergence stand out a certain way as we go along. Related to this idea, I ask people to look at neurodivergence, not as something related to a clinical definition, but to look at neurodivergence as a worker class or worker category. Interesting. So okay. in the same way that I encourage people to look at race as a worker category. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to daycare. 
I used to think that school was a preparation for nothing but work. And I, that is still true. But I've taken that a step further in my first book, which is school is work. You're not just preparing for work, school is work. Look at what you have to do when you're in school. You have to take these stupid standardized tests. And what you're doing is you're preserving the status quo. The adults in your life are demanding that you take these tests to preserve the status quo, to show that there's an achievement gap between white people and black people, right? So those tests were created to show um, superiority. And so to show that schools are making gains, to, to show that people deserve raises. So you are working for the adults. You are helping keep this whole system in place by what you do at school. You are in essence a worker. Being called a gifted student is a worker class. There is a, there's a set of expectations about what it means if you are gifted. And it's not surprising that most of the gifted programs are filled with white kids. Because, but even that, but what that means is a lot of gifted kids have their neurodivergencies and their neurodivergent needs ignored because you're not there for that. What you're there for is to do the work to prove the status quo. So even from daycare with you meeting the marks and meeting the metrics, you are working. Daycare, uh, K-5, uh, high school, you are supposed to hit certain marks. And so you are a worker. You are a worker. You're not a good worker. So what neurodivergence means that you cannot give the output that they want in the way that they want consistently. Okay. Yes, exactly. Because you get these undiagnosed neurodivergent kids who get shunted into gifted programs in order to uphold the status quo and their needs are not being met. And then you get a lot of children of color get shunted into special ed instead, again, to uphold the status quo. So they're doing the work in that nothing is expected of them, even though they Mm -hmm. can't do so much with the right accommodations. And basically nobody wins. (laughs) Nobody wins. And so, so the two examples you just gave, so let's look at special ed. Special ed is the quickest way to prison. Yes, 100%. So you're doing the work as a, as a kindergartner, proving that you need to be on this track in the first place. Mm. You're telling them, you're signaling that you're coming. And so you're on this track that ultimately leaves in prison. There's a logic to this system. This is the logic. So, so it doesn't matter if everybody stopped committing crimes today. That's not the point. The point is that there is a logic, there's a place where this is ultimately going to, the prisons will be filled up. It doesn't matter. And so your neurodivergence, um, your worker class or your worker category is one that ultimately ends in prison. So for neurodivergent people, if we can't, uh, sit for eight hours, if we can't be in a room with like 20 people who are trying to talk over each other, then it makes us a certain kind of worker that employers are happy to extract your your resources, your effort, your time, but a lot of us don't get promoted. Mm-hmm. Or our employers are happy to give us two to three times the work because they know we can handle it, but they won't promote us. Mm-hmm. So to be neurodivergent and, and understand that there are different types of neurodivergencies and they manifest in many different ways, 
But to say that you're neurodivergent or ADHD or ADHD and, and autistic at the same time, to that is a worker class. And even the definitions of what it means to have ADHD, to have autism, even the medical terms, the medical criteria are still rooted in a mentality that is about the kind of worker you can be. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. You said that so eloquently, so perfectly. That's something I've been trying to articulate for years and you just like said it. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And I think that's why TikTok, podcasts, social media can be so powerful for the neurodivergent community because finally we are getting perspectives on what it's like to feel neurodivergent, what it's like Mm -hmm. to be neurodivergent rather than what it's like to be a neurodivergent worker. And because it's not just about that, our existence is not just about work, even though the system tells us it should be. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah. Yes. Um, And so... When we step back for a moment, so so there are these overlapping systems of oppression in in our lives. And I encourage people in this book and also in the book that I have upcoming, I'll talk about that a little bit more, to really think about what systems have meant in your life. So if the systems are saying that you're this kind of worker, then that informs the logic of your life. It it is not hands-off. And think about it this way. Your family is your first system. It is also the system that imports the values of other systems. Yes. So the way we are shortchanged in many many environments, we go to therapy and I'm a fan of therapy. But when you go into therapy, you're talking about an individual experience. You're talking about... um, Uh, people are asking you to put your flaws on parade or your understanding on parade, but they're not necessarily talking about a whole logic that has informed your life. And so on one of my TikToks the other day, I asked in therapy, are there, what are your therapeutic approaches to people who are actively decolonizing? Mm. And it was like crickets, but a few people answered and I'm interested in following what they said. The other things too, I have a lot of white neurodivergent people who purchased, um, I have this as a course, but um, mainly sold it as a book. And one of the first things they would say is, well, I know I'm privileged. And I said, stop saying that in, in this space, don't say that. And here's why, because I don't need you to focus on that. What I need for you to really think about is how these systems have shaped who you are. Because if you don't understand that, then you're going to bleed all over the very people you intend to not hurt. You have to see how the systems have shaped your life, how they have harmed you, and how you have, on behalf of the systems, harmed other people. So you need to understand your relationship with those systems before you try to go out and do stuff for other people, because then that becomes saviorism. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I can hear how saying, I know I'm privileged leads to, I know I'm privileged, but, and we don't want the, but we need, I know I'm privileged and like, and it has shaped me this way. And I have contributed to it this way. And I, you know, yeah. And I know I'm privileged. Now, what are you going to do? Right. That acknowledgement is not enough. If you're not actively dismantling the systems that are harming me, then it doesn't matter about your acknowledgement. 
it's nice. nice. And I think acknowledgement is an, an essential step in the process, but it there's is. no it need is. to broadcast it. And there's no need to get that validation from people of color just because, right. or, or other oppressed, like, or historically oppressed, like, groups right. and everything. You don't, they don't, don't need people, your acknowledgement. You need the acknowledgement. <laughs> yes. I think when people do it, it's, it's, it's out of politeness, it's out of um, wanting to appear a certain way. But if I've had to rearrange my whole life so that my black son feels safe going to school, then how are you gonna help me with that? Right. That's what I need to know, right? Because his neurodivergence will land him in jail. Yes. It creates problems for your son, but his would take him to jail for sure. So um, when you talk, when I talk about decolonizing it, so then we go down that list we were talking about of the white supremacist culture mm-hmm. and how much you're willing to, even as neurodivergent people, and even me as a black person with internal, internalizing these things, how much are we willing to tackle that list of things? How much are we willing to push back on perfection or power of the written word? So you think about what it means um, when a neurodivergent child who is a black child has some sort of um, exec, uh, it, what appears to be an emotional outburst at school, and then that's written up. And now we've got a history that's been documented. Like these things separately don't mean anything, but you start putting them together. Now you got a story. So now I got the power of CPS on me. Mm-hmm. And so, but instead of getting support with the neurodivergence or whatever the particular neurodivergency is, instead of getting my needs met, I now have law enforcement and CPS involved in that. And so um, what this requires is someone who works with families to step back and decolonize their thinking about what is happening here. Decolonize their thinking about um, looking past the behavior and seeing the needs behind the behavior. Because if I'm only seen as a worker or ultimately this person who's supposed to end up in prison, because that is a worker category, right? Because the prisons are this slavery, it's enslavement. So if I'm only seeing this person as the type of worker they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to serve in society, then I am going to focus on their behavior because I'm trying to channel them a certain way as opposed to focusing on the need underneath the behavior. Mm-hmm. So I say, I made a video where I said, there are similarities between late diagnosis of autism, ADHD, and other neurodivergencies and Black boys, um, neurodivergent Black boys going to prison. There are similarities, and the similarities are this. In both cases, what is being paid attention to is the behavior and not the needs underneath. So with white women, you have learned to perform. You get rewarded for performance. So that is a focus on your behavior, which allows people to ignore your needs. Mm-hmm. So to be in a gifted program also means to be well-behaved in most cases. Mm-hmm. With black boys, it is behavior means this. So we have to get the SRO, the school resource officer involved. We have to get the juvenile justice system involved. And so again, in both cases, what's being ignored and, and this is the colonization part of it, right? Because you're extracting from white women, you're extracting from black boys. What is being ignored are the underlying needs 
because the source of the resource doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The person doesn't matter. What matters is what we can extract from that person. Yeah, exactly. And it's for anyone listening, I know this sounds bleak, but we're not being intentionally hopeless. We're being like uh, Dr. Kimberly said at the beginning, we're trying to point out that this is not a glitch in the system. This is not a mm-hmm. mistake. This is not a couple bad apples. This is the system. This is how the system was right. designed. And this can be hard to hear for some people, I think, but it's really, really necessary because it's it's like looking at something and seeing it for not what it is. And right. it's important right. to see you, what's really going on here. You know, you can't, you can't address something that you are unwilling to acknowledge. Yes. And if you want to mischaracterize it so that you can stay in la la land, then okay, well, we'll continue playing this game that we're playing. Like it, this works, this world works perfectly for you. But if you're really interested in understanding, that's why I say in my book, in order to decolonize neurodivergence, you have to be um, anti-racist, specifically anti-Black racism, because racism is the chip. Race is the chip that people can always play to make sure that your needs as a white woman are ignored. Because we use Black people in the society as crash test dummies. And if they are testing it out on us, they are going to use it on you, period. But I want to go a segue. You were saying, no, it's not bleak. That's not the point. So my second book on decolonizing neurodivergence is I'm going to, so I, like you were saying on TikTok, I've learned so much and I'm an academic, a peer-reviewed academic, and I'm also a theorist. And so when I hear different people talk on TikTok, I can see all these pieces come together. My mind is very relational, very networked in its thinking. And I can just, I can see like crutches and spice said this, and Portia said this, and Meg Moxie said this, and this is how these threads go together. And so the book that I'm putting together, um, and I'm asking people to help with the crowdfunding of it, is going to um, pull these strands together. But not only um, just in a book that explains things at a different level, but part of this is I'm going to lay out a social media agenda for discussing neurodivergence and a research agenda for academics. Ooh, I love that. I think because I have looked far and wide and the type of research agendas that we need with the things that we need people to really be looking at, they are not studying. Mm-hmm. And actually the way I use TikTok is more like a lit review. Like um, I have enough context as an, a former academic to know when people are using their own words or if they're citing somebody else and then I can go and and do my due diligence and validate what they're saying. But I see the theoretical threads and there's a research agenda forming in my head and I can see the holes in the agenda, but that was put together by people on TikTok. Now, if I went to the academic literature, I could probably do a map that would sort of overlay what I see in TikTok but it wouldn't completely, actually there'd probably be a lot more holes in that than the map of TikTok. Yeah, I think obviously like TikTok is not medical advice, but I think medical advice is lacking some of what TikTok has and TikTok is lacking some of what the medical community has. Right. And so what we need is exactly what you're providing, which is the combination. And yes, yeah, I yes. Think that's and incredible. I have a, I'm uniquely positioned to provide that perspective 
-hmm. Because as a theorist, I see, and, and, and knowledge, in this day and age, it has to grow outside of academia. And it has to be informed by knowledge, other spaces where knowledge is, is developing. And TikTok, I, I sort of use it like I use Wikipedia. It isn't the research, it isn't the literature, but what it is, is it signals to me that there's conversation I should be having in this space. Yeah, exactly. I completely, I completely agree. That's how I use TikTok as well for the most part. Um, so we are getting close to the end here. So uh, first I want to ask how people can support this book that's coming out. Uh, you said you were crowdfunding it. So there's a link we'll put in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you need people to do right now? So yeah, I am crowdfunding this and um, it's like I said, that uh, we'll provide you the link. Please go use that link, contribute whatever you can contribute. And I want to say I'm doing this as a crowdfunding first because I learned a lot of lessons from because I have all kinds of digital products. And there are people who are already supporting me and I want to give them the opportunity to invest in what I'm doing up front and also to show me what the level of support is there. And I hope this is a good lesson for a lot of neurodivergent people, especially if you are rejection sensitive. See what you can get on the front end. See how invested people are on the front end so that your ego or your self-esteem is not so dependent on sales because the sales don't necessarily indicate the value of what you're offering. There are many different ways to measure the value of what you're bringing. So I would encourage you to think about crowdfunding or you can... I can share some of my experiences with you as well, but please, 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 even if it's a dollar or five dollars, it's, it's all very helpful. And I'll say this as we wrap up, you know, I walked away from certain spaces and most people would have been like, oh my God, you're crazy for doing that. But I had to, as part of my decolonizing process, but decolonizing is very expensive. And there are a lot of costs to decolonizing. And so these projects that I take on, I have to fund myself. And I have to, um, and what, what most of this will pay for is get virtual assistant services so that I can move away from my business for a little bit and write more. And so um, that's why people don't do it because decolonization, there are risks. There are lots of rewards, but there are lots of risk as well. And just a number of costs that you can't even begin to calculate. But it's worth it. Right. Yeah, I I would agree. I think these things can be costly in unexpected ways, like when you first start. And then as you go down the process, you're like, oh, you start to see everything you're losing, but you also see so much that you're getting. And yeah. it's, yeah. So crowdfunding, great idea. Love that you're doing that. The link will absolutely be in the show notes. And the last question I'm going to ask is what I ask everybody who I have on the show. Um, if someone's listening to this and they've been spacing in and out because that's how their brain functions, sure. um, what's one thing they tuned back in right this second? What's the one thing you want them to hear? The one thing I want people to hear, peel back the layers, examine the logic of our culture for yourself before you try to go out and fix other people. That is some really good advice. <laughs> okay. 
Thank you so, so much for your time, for your expertise, for your knowledge. We appreciate it so much. Um, and yeah, for everybody listening, I will uh, see you again next Saturday. Bye. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you give us a follow over on Spotify, leave a review over on Apple Podcasts, and tune in next Saturday for another amazing episode.